I want to talk to you uh, again this morning out of the fifth chapter of uh, the book of Daniel. And uh, I want to talk to you about uh, a difficult and for many confusing issue. And I may end up confusing you more. However, it's not my goal. So it's going to be necessary for you to pay really close attention. The notes that you have in your bulletin this morning are not exhaustive. Uh, but hopefully they will help, uh, help you track with me. We've already established the fact through uh, Daniel that uh, God is sovereign. True? And uh, that statement has been made uh, several times uh, up through the fifth chapter. We acknowledge that God is sovereign over everything. He rules. He reigns. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony at the end of chapter 4 uh, is to that effect uh, fairly exhaustively, I think. So on the one hand, God is sovereign, but the Bible also teaches, on the other hand, man is responsible. Now when you think through that and you try to reason through that, the, it would seem uh, illogical. If, in fact, God is sovereign over everything, He has determined everything, He's ordained everything, now if that's true, then how can man be responsible? If man is responsible, how can God be sovereign? Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a sense of, of the dilemma there? When you think it through, you think, my gosh, that's true. Now, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9 also, wherein Paul addresses that issue. And um, this, is, this is the point of, of this place in the book of Daniel. Both those, if I can use this word, both those doctrines, the responsibility of man, the sovereignty of God, are true. And we cannot resolve them. This has been a debate amongst theologians since the inception of theology. And many times when you attempt to resolve the apparent tension between the two, that's when you go off track. That's when you begin to speculate. That's when you begin to develop uh, foreign doctrines, if you will. That's where cults come from. So the challenge for us as believers is to say, what does the Bible actually say? And I want to explore that this morning. Obviously not in exhaustive detail, but I, I want to broach the subject because that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not the handwriting on the wall. Most people read Daniel chapter 5 and that becomes the major focus. That is not the major focus. You have to understand why the Holy Spirit wrote chapter 5, and we're going to put them, uh, juxtapose one to another, chapter 5 and chapter 4. You have to hold both those doctrines in tension. It means you have to hold them both at the same time. Now that creates frustration. Some of you heard the phrase cognitive dissonance. I can't hold two things in my mind at the same time that seem to contradict each other. How many, how many like closure in their life? 
And I want, to, I, want to, I want a nice ribbon on the package. I want to know that it's okay. I can set it over here. I got that all where. You can't do that. There's lots of doctrines in the Bible that you cannot resolve one with another. You have to hold them together. How could Jesus Christ be both fully God and fully man at the same time? We don't know. We're just told that he is. And, and, and we go, there's, there's a number of those in the scriptures. And when you study the scriptures closely, you begin to see these things. But this is one of the major ones. And I think it's, it's repeated enough in the Bible, uh, and certainly at this juncture in our study of the book of Daniel, that we should certainly address it. So, best you can, stay with me, okay? Watch your neighbor closely. If they begin to drift off, just gently nudge them and say, it's early. <laughs> now, as we read Daniel chapter 5 last time, I think it is important to understand that the Holy Spirit's intention in writing this, is he not the author? We agree there? The Holy Spirit's intention in writing this is not simply to relate a consecutive story. In other words, we have Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Now, it's not just a, another consecutive story. It's not just an interesting account. But he's, he's written it to get across to us a message. And that message is to be found in the striking contrasts. That's the key here. The striking contrasts which stand between two men so closely related to one another historically, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now I know they're separated by a number of years in terms of their reign. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years over Babylon. He's the one that pulled the whole Babylonian Empire together. After his death, there was a, there was a bit of intrigue, and, and a number of rulers rose and were killed and assassinated and so forth, until Nabonidus, who was Belshazzar's father, rose to the throne. He ruled for 17 years, and for the last eight years of his reign, Belshazzar was a co-ruler. And that's why we have Belshazzar now. So Belshazzar rules for the last eight years of the Babylonian Empire, and then it ends, as we read in this chapter. But the point is, is of this chapter is there's a message in the contrast. The contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. The contrast is also between God's final word to Nebuchadnezzar and God's final word to Belshazzar. Did God speak to Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah? Clearly, huh? God speak to Belshazzar? Absolutely. And both of them toward the end of their life, true? So I think with deliberate intention, the Holy Spirit has placed the account of Belshazzar, his vision, his judgment, and his bad end He's placed it right next to, or right after, if you will, 
Nebuchadnezzar's vision, his judgment, and his good end. There is a stark contrast between the two of them in terms of how they end up and how they get there. And I think the purpose of this arrangement, if you will, is to bring home to us, very simply, the election of some and the rejection of others. Now, again, that's a hard doctrine. The doctrine of election is a hard doctrine to understand. It's a hard doctrine to accept. But it is a humbling doctrine. It is a doctrine that just forces you to your knees in gratitude and humility. Nothing I did caused God to choose me to elect me. And it's clearly, clearly taught in the Scriptures. But also, uh, the, the flip side of that, the rejection of people is clearly taught in the Scriptures too. So the intention, I think, now is to illustrate in the most vivid way possible that the Word of God, which gives life to one, can also bring death to another. And the word doesn't always come in the same form. Did it come in the same form to Nebuchadnezzar as it came to Belshazzar? No. But nonetheless, it's God's word. Is God just and fair and wise? What do you think? Can we agree to that? So how he chooses to work and how he chooses to move is just and fair and right. This is what Nebuchadnezzar said, right? Whatever he does is right. All his ways are just. So are you with me so far? All right. Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar are not the only examples of, of, this, of this theme. Um, the Bible has, uh, gives us numbers of examples of the extraordinary nature of the effect of God's grace on some of its great elect persons by contrasting those people with others who seem by reason of that very contrast to have the shadow of rejection cast over them. Examples. Do you ever hear of anybody by the name of Abel? Is there anybody juxtaposed to Abel that might seem to have the shadow of rejection cast over him? Cain. Cain hated God, despised God did not follow God, and was a murderer. In fact, he murdered his own brother, Abel, didn't he? So on the one hand, we see Abel. The Bible talks about the righteous, the blood of righteous Abel. But clearly, we have a picture of Cain. Along with them, we have the example of Jacob. Jacob, who, after his long struggles, ultimately did surrender to God. But next to him, we have who? Esau. Now, I have to confess to you, when I, first several times I read the account of Jacob and Esau, I felt sorry for poor Esau. I thought, give the guy a break. <laughs> Jacob is just a punk. I mean, if there's anybody I would not choose, it's Jacob. I don't know if you have that same reaction, but it just, it just seems unfair. But we have Jacob, who is the what? He is the elect. 
And then you have Esau, who is ultimately rejected. King David. Who do we have alongside King David? Anybody know? King Saul. So again, we see another example of an elect and one who's rejected. Remember, Samuel came to him and said, the kingdom has been torn from you. Along with the 11 faithful disciples, we have Judas. Another clear example. And so now we have Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. The great question is this. This is important. What is it that ultimately and basically determines the difference between Two people such as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. What is it that determines the difference between two people like Jacob and Esau? What is it? That's the question. One whom, to whom God is predominantly the merciful friend who saves them, and the other to whom God appears predominantly as the inescapable judge who condemns. What's the difference between the two? I want to suggest to you that the Bible puts the whole difference down to this. God's sovereignty, His wisdom, and His grace. That's it. God's sovereignty, His wisdom, and His grace. How many, how many of us have, have prayed and told God how to do things and then in retrospect said, God, thank you for not doing it my way. Aren't you glad that he's wise? Aren't you glad that he knows better? How many believe that God has an absolute sovereign plan and purpose? Sovereign. Before the foundation of the world. How many know that God didn't make us robots? We're not automatons. We have, we have been given this gift of the capacity to make choices, right? So let me suggest to you that it is always a mystery why one should seem to be elect and another seem to be rejected. It's a mystery. You're going to scratch your head, you're going to read, you're going to study. Uh, you're going to, I mean, I can't tell you how much study over the years I've done. I almost quit the kingdom of God over this early on in my Christian experience. I was so frustrated. No one told me, you can't resolve it. And I'm trying to resolve this issue. And I was so frustrated, so frustrated that I thought, I'm out. I'm going to quit. Some of you heard me tell this. And one, one day, was, I was being very dramatic about it. It was a winter, cold and blustery and windy. And I went down to the beach and I had my Bible. And I had this picture. I'm going to walk down to the water's edge and I'm going to throw my Bible in the ocean. I quit! Because I can't get my own way. And I promise you, I reared back, 
just about ready to throw the Bible in the ocean, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I said, no, I know too much. <laughs> I know too much. I can't quit. But this one issue, I said, God, I need you to resolve this. I need you to give me some wisdom about this issue. So I put it on the, on the, on the, on the shelf for a while. And then sure enough, I was in seminary, and I had a wise professor who helped me with some perspective. I went, duh. So I'm basically teaching you out of his notes. <laughs> one aspect, and this is key, one aspect of the mystery is the unsearchable decision of God. What kind of decision of God? Unsearchable. How many parents do we have? How many parents have ever made a decision for their kids that the kids could possibly never understand when you made it? It's kind of unsearchable. And they go, why, 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 why? And you say, there's no way you can get it. No way you can understand. You just have to trust me. My decision. I know best. I got all the facts. I know what I'm doing. Right, parents? Pastors are like that. Sometimes they have to make decisions. They're difficult. And sometimes the children, wah. One aspect of the mystery is the unsearchable decision of God. It goes like this. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Period. Are you with me? Who's sovereign? Can he make that decision? Is he unfair? Well, we say no, but it, something inside us says, but, 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 it seems unfair. The Bible says he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. Oh man, do you, don't you love that? How many would love to have God harden your heart? No. That's why, that's why you want to stay really close to him. <laughs> if he by his grace has opened up your life, you want to stay really close to him. Turn to Romans chapter 9 with me. The context of chapter 9 is the very theme, the sovereignty of God. Paul opens the chapter with a lament for his Jewish brothers. And he said that, you know, he's, he's grieving over them. And, and he, he, he goes so far as to say even that I, I, I could be cursed in their place. And all of us feel some sentiment like that. You know, there isn't a parent around that says, the sick child, that, you know, God, I'll take that and just save my child. And so as he's talking about the sovereignty of God and God's sovereign choice, Beginning in verse 6, he says it's, it's, God's word hasn't failed. His promises haven't failed. But Paul's saying, let me bring you some clarity, some perspective. 
He says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, now he quotes God's God. He says, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then he says, for this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Remember when God appeared to Abraham back in the book of Genesis? And he was 99 years old and you know, Sarah was 89 and they'd been waiting for over 20 years, 25 years almost. And God finally gets there when no, it's not even humanly possible to have a child. They're well into their geriatric years. And yet God's going to give them a child. It's a miracle. Jesus says in John chapter 8, I think it was John chapter 8, when um, the Jewish leaders approached him and, and they, were, they were telling him, we are God's children. We are Abraham's children. And Jesus turned to them and he said that thing that is always calculated to win friends and influence people. <laughs> what did he say to them? You are not God's children. You are not Abraham. You are children of your father, the devil. Whoa. I'll bet that was a sticky moment, huh? <laughs> imagine, imagine being there going, I mean, being a fly on the wall or being one of the disciples and going, oh, man, Jesus, I mean, just you know, don't do that. Verse 10, he says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now some people say, well, well I, I, I know the answer to this problem. I've already had people talk, talk to me about this after this. So they were going to solve the problem for me. I said, thank you so much. And, and what, they, what they pose is, is this, and it's in contradiction to what I just read to you. They say, well, God knew, he knew way ahead of time that they would choose him, and so that's why he chose them. God's sovereign? Does he know everybody? Does he know everything about you? Does he know all the choices you're going to make? Does he know that one day you would choose him? Does he choose you because you chose him? No. We choose him because he first chose us. We love him because he first loved us. See, we, we typically make it about us. Well, see, God knew we would do this, so he chose us because he knew we would choose him. No. This is what it says right here. He says, no. It's not anything the person did. It's simply God's sovereign choice. It's not because you're so cute. It's not because you have a lot of money. It's not because you're educated. It's not because you're a nice guy. None of that. We just have to humble ourselves and say, God, thank you. I don't deserve this. This is a, 
immense blessing and privilege. I am humbled, humbled, humbled. Oh, God, thank you. Amen. Anybody ever have somebody do something for you that you never deserved, but you desperately needed and you knew and there was no hope for you unless someone stepped in and just simply out of the pure grace and mercy of their heart, they didn't owe you anything, they did it for you? Are you forever in that person's debt? Do we see things like, if you ever need anything, I'll be there. I'm forever in your debt. Am I making sense? Are you, are you still tracking with me? Have I gone too far off? Yes? Let's read on. Verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or man's effort, but on God's what? Mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, one of you is going to say to me, well, then why does God still blame us? In other words, why does God hold me accountable? Why am I still responsible? Uh, Who can resist his will? If he's sovereign and he's determined all this stuff? A logical question to ask. But how does Paul respond to that person? He says, who are you, old man? Answer back to God. Does the thing made say to the maker, why'd you make me this way? Let me suggest to you something very, very important. Take note of this. Never forget this. Never forget this. The minute, the instant you question God, you question his character, you question his goodness, or you question his word. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a question. I have a question. Okay, let's answer the question. But when you call him into question, you call his character into question, you call his word into question, you call his goodness into question, you have just stepped over into unbelief. You have just sinned grievously. This is what it means to live by faith. God, I trust you. I don't understand it all, but I trust you and I know you and I know you understand it all. As you go back and forth and you read these biblical accounts of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Jacob and Esau, Cain and Abel and, and such, you read these accounts of these contrasting characters, you have to admit this side of the mystery. God does seem to choose and he does seem to reject. You can't get away from that. He does seem to raise up, he does seem to cut down. We've already read in, 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 in the book of Daniel, God is sovereign, right? I mean, if you just look back at chapter 4, just look back again at chapter 4, and, and you look at uh, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, just the last couple of verses. Nebuchadnezzar, just, he, he just states it so, so succinctly. He's, he speaks of God, and he says, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. 
He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, no one has a right to accuse God. How many, how many parents love it when your kids talk back to you? As if you're a ninny. Like you're clueless. And they, they, they try to exhibit this foolish, foolish wisdom. You just, you just... Right? We are not being faithful to Scripture if we fail to make this emphasis that God does seem to choose, God does seem to reject. You just have to look at it. But as we read these accounts, we cannot fail to notice also, and this is, this is important now, that it was through the personal and real decisions of each person before the gracious God, that his purposes were worked out. How does that all work? I have no idea. (laughs) But it seems to be that God's purpose is worked out, his sovereign will is worked out as I make decisions. And they're my decisions. I'm not a computer that's been pre-programmed to make the decisions I make decisions, albeit I have a limited capacity to do so. The absolute justice, absolute justice of the workings of sovereign grace is displayed by allowing us to see that each person received what his response merited. God is just. Absolutely. His grace is awesome. And it's in that context that we see that everyone receives exactly what his response merits. Human decision must be seen, therefore, as a factor, albeit maybe a secondary factor, but a factor nonetheless helping to determine which aspect of God's twofold work was to have preeminence within the divine human relationship. Election, rejection. There seems to be no doubt that the approach of God to Nebuchadnezzar, the approach of God to Belshazzar, was the same from the very start. This is important. Did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world? Yes, 1 John 2, 2. Died for the sins of the whole world. Did God so love the whole world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe would not perish? Is it God's will that any should perish? What do you think? No. No, we see that clearly from the scriptures. Let me read to you from Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? In that same chapter in Ezekiel, verse 32, he says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord, repent and live. Who of us has not said that to people? Stop! Turn! Quit! Go in there! 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is patient with you. How many are glad for that? The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to what? Repentance. Beloved, may I suggest to you, God always prefers His merciful work to His judgmental work. He prefers His merciful work to His judgmental work. Mercy is appropriate to Him. He delights in it. Judgment is strange to him. It is his shadow side, if you will. And he wants it to remain always his shadow side. Listen to Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show what? Mercy. Don't we all, aren't we all like that? I mean, when you, when you become a believer and, and the Spirit of God is resident in you and He begins to change you and make you like Him, don't you, don't you kind of lean in that direction not to stay angry forever and, 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 and delight in showing mercy? Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21, characterizes God's work of judgment this way. This is interesting. I, I, I found this fascinating. And I just stumbled on this verse, by the way, when I was looking up the word judgment. Describes his work of judgment as his strange work. His alien task. In other words, God always, always comes first to people in mercy. Irrespective of who the person is, He always comes first in mercy. We have seen how Nebuchadnezzar opened his life and found that he was indeed opening it for the merciful purpose of God. Isn't that true? He finally looked up. But the question is, what about Belshazzar? What about Belshazzar? The very fact that he is set so closely alongside Nebuchadnezzar in the text, in the accounts, so that a point-by-point -point comparison can be made, allows us to assert this, that he also was in a position to have exactly the same grace shown to him, though perhaps in a different form. How can I say that, do you think? Can I, just, can I just say it because it's a supposition I'm making? Or can I draw it from the text? I'm going to suggest you I'm drawing it from the text. Verse 22 of that passage, when Daniel was speaking to him, what did Daniel say to him? 
got right in his face. What did he say? He said, you knew. You knew. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar's remarkable experience. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. You knew. I think it's a fair assumption that when Belshazzar started his reign, he could have seen enough and heard enough that had he desired to see it and hear it, this could have convinced him of the genuineness of Nebuchadnezzar's experience. Isn't that true? Isn't that the same true of us? I mean, you've got to decide. You've got to say, you know, I, I'm going to listen to your testimony. I'm going to hear, I'm going to hear what you say. I, I, I'm going to look at your changed life. I, I want to take note of that. You've got to want to do that. Amen. He was in a position. Is it fair to say that, that Belshazzar was in a position to do that, given Nebuchadnezzar's testimony? But he refused. He refused to respond in any way to this surrounding grace. Had God surrounded him with grace? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. The word was allowed no inner place in which to work. The word could get no foothold in his life. Do we see parallels of that? Tragic, huh? Tragic. People just won't listen. They don't want to listen. Therefore, by the grace of God, the absurd had to happen. The shadow side of God's work and activity appeared to take preeminence. The shadow side is what? The side of judgment. Belshazzar, in his decision, the decision of his will, found himself met by a God determined to take his strange, alien way with him, Belshazzar willingly committed himself to look into the face of wrath and not that of grace. He who was rejected is held responsible for choosing to be so. Try to get your mind around that one. God gave him every opportunity, did he not? Did he have heavy exposure? Absolutely. The scripture does not attempt to give any reasons, any reasons whatsoever for the salvation of the elect. Simply because there is no reason save God's choice. Nor does the scripture attempt to bring everything in this problem 
clearly together to show how the mystery of the choice of man logically or even justly fits into the mystery of the decision of God. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. What is it? The realities of life. The realities of the faith as they come out in this matter do not fit into our human logic. It's that simple. You simply bow before God and say, your will be done. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm going to die to myself, deny myself. I'm going to pick up my cross every day and follow you. This defies human logic. It defies human, but in our own arrogance and pride, we can't be satisfied with that. And yet God tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, what? What does he tell us? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher than yours. At that point, like Job, I'm shutting my mouth. <laughs> who are you, O man, who answers back to God? See, what comes out clearly, I think, within this dynamic encounter is that when Belshazzar so perversely said no to God, his refusal served only to demonstrate, to justify, and to seal upon his experience the fact that God was saying no to him. Wow. And God was saying no with the same almighty power and unquenchable zeal as was behind his desire to save Belshazzar. God is always Lord. He is always Lord. He is, there is never a time when he's not Lord. He is always Lord. He is always Lord. Even when a man is being perverse, and being damned because he refuses to be saved. This means simply that Belshazzar was rejected while Nebuchadnezzar was elected. And yet, he who was rejected deliberately chose to be so. And he who was elected deliberately responded to the grace that saved him. No encounter that we ever have with God can, from our point of view, be one-sided. By that, I mean no matter how God, no matter what God says, no matter what God does, no matter how He speaks with us, whether He saves or condemns in His word and His action, no matter what He does, there always seems to come before us two sides of his activity and two sides of his being. One side revealing, what do you think, his mercy, and the other side revealing his, his righteousness. 
from which emanates his judgment. In mercy, we encounter righteous judgment. In mercy, we encounter righteous judgment. I'm going to explain that. But now I'm going to say something that's going to really warp your mind. I've given it to you in your notes so you can think on it. We are not accepted by God without at the same time being judged and condemned by the God who is justifying us. Don't you love that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Let me say it again. We are not accepted by God without at the same time being judged and condemned by the God who is, what? Justifying us. I want to, I just, I was tickled pink laughing silly at my desk the other day, writing that down, thinking, oh, they're going to love that one. (laughs) Let me explain it. We are never made whole without at the same time being broken by him. Isn't that true? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Right? For the Bible tells us when we are made new, if I'm to be made new, the old things have to be made to what? Pass away, to die. This is why... We pick up that, that uh, 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 element of death, the cross, because it's an everyday dying, a deliberate decision on our part. If I'm to know newness, then, I, then th- that another part of me has to die. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, therefore, if any, anyone is in Christ, in other words, if you're, if you're united with him, if you're in that in that relationship with him, then you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has what? Come. This is why he can say in Philippians chapter 3, one thing I do. What's the one thing he does? I, I, I live in the past. I remember the past. I, I love to remember the past. I, can't, I, just, I love my past. I love all the stuff that's going on. Why do we do it so much then? One thing I do. What does he say? Forgetting what is behind. I I what? Look at the word he uses. I strain. Straining ahead. I'm running as fast as I can. Yet even when our experience of God is dominated as sometimes happens by the fearful shattering judgment of God, we can never fail somehow to encounter the merciful aspect of God even in our experience of judgment. That's a matter of faith. God, you are faithful. You are merciful. You have mashed me into the ground You've torn everything from me. You have decimated me. 
but I know your mercy also. I needed that, I guess. I trust you. Have your way. This was so in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. God's mercy acted alongside his judgment. In and through all of the experiences that came to Nebuchadnezzar under the pressure of God's grace to him, there is not the least doubt from beginning to end that this man is being as gradually and gently as possible one for the service of God. Can anybody relate to being gradually dragged into the kingdom? (laughs) Kicking and screaming with rounded heels. God's hand upon you. That was my experience. (sighs) Now look at me. Not my wildest dreams, my wildest dreams would I ever, ever, would ever think that I would be doing what I'm doing. The word of God in Nebuchadnezzar's life was, was breathed from his mind into his dreams. God was going to get to him. You see God speaking into his life. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hear the word, but it was in his head and it got into his dreams. Even as we, we watched him and observed him undergoing the, the harsh, harsh treatment, that shock treatment, seven years of in, total insanity. At the end of his days, there is no alteration in the fact that God was working all those things together for his purpose. Oh, takes your breath away. Takes your breath away. God does not fail to play the part of one who cares and one who is there to draw us to himself in loyalty and friendship. Mercy. Mercy is in the foreground, judgment is in the background in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. But as we shift our our vision from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar in his last days, the whole approach of God seems, on the surface at least, to be totally different. Judgment seems to be in the foreground. Mercy seems to remain in the background towards him. It seems that this affair is not an affair of friendship, but of rather uh, an affair of a cold, unwavering, carefully calculated judgment on Belshazzar. The atmosphere surrounding him is that of a courtroom, or rather that of the anteroom, the entrance to the executioner's chamber, cold. Now the word of God does not come as it did to Nebuchadnezzar, wrapped up in his own dreamy imagery, no. Uh, But it's thrust on Belshazzar. In harsh confrontation, in the writing on the wall, in a form that's alien and threatening to him, ominous. Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen, didn't listen, didn't listen, but then the word seeped into his dream. The word comes differently to Belshazzar, 
He knew, he knew, he knew, he knew. He had the testimony. But now the word comes starkly to him, written by that hand on the wall. And it struck terror in him. The contrast is so, so striking between the way the word came to Nebuchadnezzar and the way that it came to Belshazzar uh, that it seems almost to be a different God that's doing this. At least that's the way it seems on the surface. But we know it was not a different God. That in the midst of such a final judgment, there was at least to Belshazzar, there was at least still one last sign of mercy. As that hand was writing on the wall, God still extended to him one last expression of mercy. What might that have been? Anybody guess? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel was there to help him to repent if he cared. How many of us have been in someone's life or someone has been in our life at that, vast, at that last minute we say, come on, I'm here. I think that we can say with a fair measure of confidence that the occasion of the handwriting on the wall was not an isolated incident, but rather it was the climax. It was a climax of a long process which Belshazzar had, had come to know exactly what he was rejecting when he refused to follow the way of Nebuchadnezzar. It was the same God who showed that judgment to Belshazzar as showed mercy to Nebuchadnezzar. Such was the way with one man. Such was the way with the other. And both ways reveal true and worthy aspects of the one loving, gracious God. When the Apostle Paul, in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, when he wrote giving examples of the kindness and the sternness of God, same time, the kindness and the sternness of God, he added a warning the context is the, the, uh, uh, the parable of the olive tree with the ingrafted branches, chapter 11 of Romans. In verse 20, he, he says, but they were broken off, the, the, the Jews were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Here's his first warning. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Be afraid. Don't be complacent. Be afraid. He says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. When the Bible brings before us so clearly and pointedly accounts of degradation, tragedy, disaster, such as we have in Belshazzar, alongside accounts such as that of Nebuchadnezzar, we must not imagine 
that it's only the account of Nebuchadnezzar that has relevance, that there could be no possibility of our traveling the way of Belshazzar. <laughs> is there a possibility? See, I believe that Belshazzar is presented to us in the book of Daniel, right next to the account of Nebuchadnezzar, so that we can learn from him. His story, I believe, stands out as a, as a bright warning light, you know, like a lighthouse, warning approaching ships, you know, there's, a, there's shoals here, there's rocks, and don't come near here. Belshazzar's account warns us, don't be complacent. Don't think, once saved, always saved. Don't think, well, I'm in. Don't even go there. Jesus said, he who perseveres to the end, that's the proof of your salvation. People say to me, Pastor, do you believe, do you believe in once saved, always saved? I said, that's not the question. The question is this, are you persevering to the end? I mean, you can look good for a long time, can't you? You can appear to bear fruit for a long time, and then at the end... Let's go out gloriously, shall we? Let's go out in a blaze of glory, not in a whimper. Well, I've, I'm going to sit back and I've done my share. No. You got breath in your body. I don't care if you're 99 years old, man. You ought to be having babies. <laughs> Spiritual babies, thank you. Belshazzar's testimony to us. Note this, please. Belshazzar's testimony warns us that we can all drift easily into the habit of trifling with God. Why am I pausing to let that sink in? We can drift easily into the habit of what? Trifling with God, not taking him seriously, blowing him off, ignoring him, not taking the things of God, the kingdom of God seriously. And that can gradually lead on through continued neglect and a quiet and steady hardening of mind and attitude. And that leads to deeper and more serious forms of resistance till we cease to care anymore. We cease to care about once, what once moved us. We cease to be ashamed or blush at what once would have shocked us. We become apathetic. We can too soon arrive at this point of disaster unless we know our tendency, our weakness, and we guard against it. That's why you come to church all the time. That's why you go to mini church all the time. That's why you know your spiritual gifts and you serve all the time. That's why you're fully invested because you do not want to trifle with God. You do not want to trifle with the things of God because that just opens the door to a path of 
degradation, apathy, sin. You see, I believe that Belshazzar's there to, to teach us. Stand as a warning to us, to us especially who believe ourselves in grace. The writer to Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, he says, See to it that you do not miss the grace of God. And then it concludes that chapter with this. He says, For our God is a consuming fire. The whole of chapter 12 warns us basically about refusing God. Is God determined? Does he want all of us? He says, love me with part of your heart, part of your soul, part of your strength. Is that what he says? What's he say? Kristen, what does he say? Whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? If we're not moving in that direction, now we're going to do it perfectly, I know that, but that's not an excuse. If we're not moving in that direction, if we're not committed to that, then we won't. Then we're trifling with God. We're determining what we'll do. Let me read to you from 1 Peter. How many would like to make your calling and election sure? Right? Make your calling and election sure? Here's the formula. You want the formula? There it is. 2 Peter, Peter chapter 1. Peter writes and he says... Speaking of Jesus, His divine power has given us most of the things we need for life and godliness. All things, everything, everything. Given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So we've been called. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that... Through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruptions of the world caused by evil desires. How many want to escape the corruptions of the world? Participate in the divine nature. All right. For this very reason, that you might escape the corruptions caused by evil desires, that you might participate in the divine nature, for this very reason, make... Every effort. Does that sound like being all in? Fully invested? Make every effort to add to your faith. It's not enough just to have faith. Well, I have faith. I believe in Jesus. Boom, that's it. I'm in. Cool. No, that's just the starting point. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. That means you've got to take some classes. You've got to study. You've got to read. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, 
He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who wants a rich welcome when we enter in? Who wants to hear, well done, well done. You ran the race, come on in, receive the victor's crown. Election, rejection. Guess what? The choice is yours. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you. Lord, some of us have to make a decision today. All of us have to make a decision today to be more fully invested with you, your kingdom, not to trifle with you, not to trifle with the things of your kingdom, your will, your purpose. You are utterly, absolutely sovereign. You love us. You've given everything for us. Lord, you call us now, and you have given us the ability to give everything back to you. God, strengthen us, open our eyes, turn our hearts. Have mercy on us as you did with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And God forbid that any of us should reject your mercy and grace as Belshazzar did. Father, we love you this morning. Amen, church? All right. Anybody get anything this morning? You must have gotten something. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to share right now with your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and share one thing that you got, the point that God made for you. Share that right now. Make that yours. Solidify it.